As mentioned, the text for this afternoon is John chapter 2, the verses 1 through 12. We won't read the text over, but again, as, as this morning, it would be good to have your Bibles open if possible. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, John's Gospel opens in chapter 1 with some amazing, glorious statements about Jesus. It says there in chapter 1, Jesus is the light of the world. Or, Jesus is the life of mankind. Or, the Word of God become flesh. Jesus is the one that John the Baptist pointed to and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or, here is the one who is coming who will be greater than I will. Now in chapter 2, we're about to see Jesus' first sign. That's what verse 11 tells us. This was the first of Jesus' signs or the beginning of His signs. So, what's it going to be? After chapter 1, we assume it's probably going to be something big, something glorious, something very spiritual that points us to the glorious kingdom of God. But then if that's what you're expecting, chapter 2 comes as a bit of a surprise, doesn't it? What's Jesus' first sign? Well, he changes water into wine at a friend's wedding because the wine had run out. Now sure, that's, that's impressive, let's not doubt that, but it seems sort of worldly or mundane. It doesn't have anything at least obviously to do with the kingdom of God. You might have expected a, a healing or, or fire to come down from heaven like it happened with Elijah, something more obviously God-oriented. And here's the thing, if we know anything about the Apostle John who records this story that should surprise us because mundane and worldly is not at all the way that John especially presents the Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus's ministry he doesn't present Jesus as a mere miracle worker over and over again in fact John shows how everyone else seemed to be thinking at a mundane, earthly level, and Jesus constantly has to reorient their perspective towards God. You might think of the woman at the well in, in chapter 4. Jesus promises her living water, and she thinks he's talking about actual water, and so he has to redirect her perspective. Or think even of later here in chapter 2 in verse 18 where he tells the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And all they're thinking about is the physical building of the temple when he's talking about the sacrifice of his body. Or later the Lord Jesus feeds the 5,000 and, and they, they as a result try to make him king, not because they were brought to repentance by what he had, what he had done but simply because he gave them food for their stomachs. And so almost everything that the Lord Jesus says or does in the Gospel of John carries a deeper meaning and is pointing to the kingdom of God. It's making important points about the nature of God's kingdom. And so if we know that about Jesus' ministry and the rest of the Gospel of, of John, it should leave us expecting that the same would be true also here in chapter 2, even if that doesn't 
jump out at us at the first reading. We should be asking ourselves as we read this, what is it the Lord Jesus is seeking to teach us by this sign? Let me summarize the answer first in a sentence, and then we'll work through the text to see it there for ourselves. Here it is. The Lord Jesus promises to turn the stale water of the law into sweet wine of rejoicing. I'll show you in a moment where we get that from as we turn to the text, and we'll notice three things that as the Lord Jesus directs us the three things that the Lord Jesus directs us to, which is first, God's agenda, not anybody else's. Secondly, He directs us to a new covenant, not the old one. And third, He directs us to Himself as the glorious fulfillment of God's promises. Well, verse 1 tells us that these events took place on the third day, or you could also translate that three days later from, from the previous event. And so if we count backwards, that places us six, maybe seven days from the beginning of the Gospel of John when we first meet John the Baptist. It depends on how you count the days, whether that turns into six or seven. The, the wedding is taking place in Cana, which our text tells us is in Galilee. And it's good to remember that's outside of the heartland of Israel. Like uh, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Galilee? Many Jews thought that way. And so by beginning his ministry already here in Galilee, the Lord Jesus is already making an important point about the kingdom of God. There's, there's, there's no great significance to one's pedigree or one's place of birth. The gospel of the kingdom is for all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, social status, or place that you live. Those who dwelt in darkness, said the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Galilee, have seen a great light. Now our text tells us that Mary was invited, as well as Jesus and his disciples. It's interesting, there's no mention here of Joseph. Um, and it's not the only place in the Gospels where Mary and the brothers get mentioned, but no Joseph. So there's an old tradition that says that Joseph probably actually died while Jesus was still young, sometime before Jesus began his ministry. And, and these verses give support to that idea. The fact that Mary and, and Jesus were invited suggests it was probably a, a wedding for a, uh, a member of the family or a very close family friend. That also makes sense considering this was their hometown. They, they came from Galilee. Verse 3 tells us that as the wedding proceeded, the wine ran out. Now it was the groom's job to supply the wine, and it would have been a huge embarrassment for the wine to run out. In fact, some commentators say that the groom could have been sued for running out of wine because these ceremonies were all prearranged by contract. He had responsibilities to the family of the bride. So it's a very serious situation. And so we read that, that Mary goes to Jesus to tell him about this, this situation that the wine has run out. And this, this further confirms it was probably a, a family or friend's wedding because we have Mary even working behind the scenes, overseeing different aspects of the wedding, maybe managing the supplies. Now we should right away ask the question, why does Mary go to Jesus 
for this problem. Some people say it's because she expected that he was going to perform a miracle. But we should remember this is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. So that seems unlikely that she was expecting a miracle. A more likely reason is that he was simply the oldest son, and especially if Joseph had passed away while he was younger, then Mary would have learned to rely on her oldest son, Jesus. And so, in other words, her, her request is simply, please, my son Jesus, go and do something about this situation, lest we embarrass the family of, of the groom. And Jesus' response to Mary comes completely out of the blue. He says to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we should ask, where does that response come from? Why does Jesus respond to his mother that way? The, the address woman, it's not rude. It comes across as rather rude in, in the English. It's not rude, it was a polite way of speaking, but it's also not the way a son would normally speak to his mother. It's, it's the way you would respectfully speak to a stranger. It's kind of like the word ma'am. And that's the point here. Jesus intentionally distances himself from his mother. He speaks to her as one speaks to a stranger. Even though she's his mother, he needs to be subservient to his father's will and not his mother's will and timing. And she doesn't seem to understand that yet. And so we, we can't know exactly what Mary was thinking here, but judging by the Lord's response, it seems that she was hoping that Jesus would somehow save the day, that he would thereby win some honor and respect and, and social standing for himself. She knew all that the angel Gabriel had told her, that he was going to be the savior of his people. Of course, she didn't understand how that was going to happen. And she had heard some of the other prophecies by men like Simeon or, or the prophetess Anna. And from her perspective, with the Lord Jesus already being now some 30 or so years old, it didn't seem to her like any of that was ever going to happen. And so now here was a moment where Jesus could finally command some respect, win some honor for himself, and save the day. She might not have expected a miracle, but she certainly seems to have expected him to save the day. But she didn't understand God the Father's plans and purposes for Jesus. And that's the point that Jesus is highlighting here. He has to rebuke her. She may be his mother, but when it comes to God's purposes... There's no special access to God. She's going to need to learn to relate to him, to her son Jesus, as any other woman, and in fact, as a sinful woman, as much in need of his salvation as anyone else. We can imagine that would have been very, very hard for Mary to learn to relate to her son in that way. But it reminds us of what the Lord Jesus himself said elsewhere when he was told by, by someone in the crowd that his brother and mother's... Or, brothers and mother, were, were looking for him. And he says in Matthew 12, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or you might think of how he responded. There, there was a woman in the crowd that, that cried out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And the Lord Jesus responded, Blessed rather are those who hear the words of God and keep them. 
There's no special access to the Savior, not even by Mary herself. There's no special influence on God's agenda. Jesus was not going to be exactly the kind of Savior that Mary was looking for or expecting. He was going to be the kind of Savior that she needed and that all of us need. And so he responds to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? One of the most common themes you find in John, you see it in the other Gospels as well, is that everyone seems to assume that they know exactly what the Messiah is going to be like, and they know exactly what His mission is going to be. And for the most part, they get it very wrong. For the most part, they were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and save them from the Romans instead of from their sins. And even Mary, even though the angel Gabriel told her that he would save them from their sins, surely even Mary did not yet understand what he would have to do and go through in order to do that. If only she knew what Jesus' mission would entail, surely she never would have encouraged him to begin the way that we see her doing. And so the Lord adds to, adds to what he said to her, my hour has not yet come. And for the reader of the Gospel, and for us too, this should lead us to start asking, well, what is this hour that he's speaking of? John repeats this phrase over and over again, my hour has not yet come, until towards the end, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus finally says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Instead, Father, glorify your name. So the Lord Jesus did not come to glorify Mary. He did not even come to glorify himself, as he says in, in John 8, verse, 40, verse 54. But instead, he came to glorify the Father. His hour had not yet come, and when it did, Mary and the disciples too would learn that his agenda was not at all what they had imagined. Well, what is that agenda? That's our second point. Surprisingly, after Jesus responds the way that he does to Mary, you'll notice he still does do something about her request. But now he's doing this on his own terms and for his own expectations and not on her terms for her purposes. We're told that there were six stone water jars standing there, and they were specifically for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, it may be that John is making a special point by mentioning that there were six jars. It wouldn't be the only time that John uses numbers to make a point. But it might also just be because there, there were six of them, and he's just being precise. In any case, John is very precise about their purpose. They were there for the special Jewish rites of purification, probably to wash any important utensils or for the guests to ceremonially wash their hands. And so, welcome to the Jewish world where all of these rituals take center stage. One must keep the law to the last and the smallest detail, and only then will the Messiah come when Israel is finally keeping the whole law to the smallest detail. That's what the Pharisees believed. 
They knew the curse of Deuteronomy 28 that if they just disobeyed God's law, they would go into exile. And even now that they're back in the land, they, they still had foreign powers ruling over them. And so the solution, as, as the Jews saw it, was to keep God's law, to get every member of Jewish society to keep the law perfectly to the smallest detail. And then they believed the Messiah would come. Well, in that context, Jesus does an amazing thing. He tells the servants nearby to go and fill those six stone water jars to the brim. And then the Lord tells the servants to bring that water, notice it doesn't yet say it had become wine, to bring that water to the master of the feast. From our perspective as the reader, we get to enjoy knowing what the master of the feast does not yet know. And when he tastes the water, which it says now had become wine, it's clearly delicious and so much so that he goes to the groom who was responsible for providing that wine and tells him in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you, you kept the good wine until now. Okay, so what's the point of that sign? The Lord Jesus, we know He isn't just trying to provide extra wine for the wedding, otherwise He wouldn't have responded the way He did to His mother. He has His mind fixed on God's agenda. So what's the Lord teaching by this sign? Well, if we're going to understand this miracle, we need to know why John wrote this Gospel in the first place. He tells us why in John 20, verse 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the purpose for which John wrote the entire Gospel of John. And so that's also then the reason why he records this miracle here in chapter 2. So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that we would have life in His name. So whatever Jesus is teaching us with this miracle, that's what this is ultimately about. And if we keep that on our minds as we search this text, it'll help us to to see what Jesus is doing with this sign. With that in mind then, two, two things clue us in to the point that Jesus is making. First, there's the fact that He used these six jars for purification. Notice verse 6 specifically mentions that they were jars for the Jewish rites of purification. It's an extremely odd thing if you stop and think about it. It's a very odd thing for Jesus to do. Surely the servants would have wondered what in the world this, the, these jars of purification had to do with the need for wine. They would have been kept in totally different rooms. The two had nothing to do with each other. And this becomes especially striking when Jesus then tells the servants to draw out from those jars and give the water, which we know would soon turn into wine, to give that water to the master of the feast. If you just stop and think about it, that's such an odd thing for Jesus to do. He didn't just command the wine casks to be full. He could have done it that way, but instead, instead goes through these six jars for purification. And we can only imagine what the servants would have been thinking is, 
is Jesus being a prankster? Is he playing a practical joke? Because if he was, and the, the master of the feast didn't respond well to that joke, it could bring serious shame and trouble on the groom. So that's one clue that points us to, to what Jesus is up to. But let's leave that there for just a moment, and we'll come back to it in a second. The second clue here is the way that the master responds after tasting the wine. Notice he doesn't just comment on how good the wine tastes, but he specifically makes that contrast between the first wine and the later wine, indicating how much better the later wine was. Now this, this clues us in to some of the larger themes of the Gospel of John. You can think of what John tells us in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the Jews thought that there was nothing better, nothing greater than Moses and the law that came through Moses. For the Jews, just like for the master of the feast, what came first was obviously what was best. The Jews were looking for a restoration of what came first, the old order as it was under Moses and David. And it would take a, a Copernican revolution for them to, to, to realize that what came later is what the Old Testament was really all about. That's why, for example, the Samaritan woman rebukes Jesus and she asks him, are you greater than our father Jacob? who built this well? And the answer is, obviously not. Or in chapter 8, the Jews challenged Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? And again, the, the implied, obvious answer is, no, of course, no one could be greater than our father Abraham. Just like the master of the feast, the Jews knew that obviously what came first was best. And yet John teaches us over and over again in the Gospel that no, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, and there's no question which is better, came through Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, what came first, as good as it might have been, was not what was best. It pointed forward to something better. Now, it's understandable that the Jews were looking for a restoration of the old order. The prophets in the Old Testament did often speak in that way. You think of Jeremiah 31, where, where Jeremiah says, Again, I will build you, O Israel, and you shall be rebuilt. And yet, Israel's former glory was never restored the way that it used to be under Solomon. And why not? Well, because Israel's glory wasn't in the first place the might and wealth of their empire. Israel's glory was Israel's God. That's where the glory was to be found. So the Israelites were looking for the wrong kind of restoration. They failed to see the seriousness of their own sin before God. They hoped that all would just be restored if they would commit themselves to these empty, meaningless rituals. But empty rituals will never be enough to bring Israel back to her God, to bring about the salvation that God had promised. And that's why the prophets consistently spoke about a new covenant that would be made not like the first covenant. You think of Jeremiah 31 again, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt. 
Instead, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will forgive their iniquity. So Israel was hoping for for a simple restoration of the old order without recognizing the old order had nothing that could address the problem of sin. It only pointed forward to something new, something better. The law was good. It reflected the holiness of God. It revealed His will, but it also revealed the depths of their sin. By itself, the law cannot save us. It's powerless. It will never bring about the glory of God or the kingdom of God. We can never do that by by turning the law into a system of rituals and things that we can do and then following those rituals to the last detail. That won't bring about the kingdom of God. And so the Lord Jesus turns this thinking on its head and the Apostle John makes it super clear No, surprising though it might be, what comes first is not what's best. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so now we can see why the Lord Jesus chose to draw the water from those six stone jars for purification. They stood there representing the old Jewish order, the law, the rituals, and not even the law of Moses, but the man-made rituals that the Jews had set up in Moses' name so that they could try and attain the righteousness of God by, by following all those rituals. And Jesus has the servants fill those all the way up to the brim. And once filled to the brim, what do you get? Well, you get nothing but 150 gallons of cold, stale, empty, tasteless water. Surely it's a picture of the result before God's eyes of man's efforts to achieve righteousness by, uh, by empty ritual means. Empty rituals, whether it's the washing of hands or fasting or even something like church attendance, as a ritual by themselves can never attain the holiness of God. They can never make us righteous before Him. But then Christ, having filled, or you could say fulfilled, it's the same word in the Greek, fulfilled the law to the brim, He then draws out of it by His power not stale, tasteless water, but instead deep, delicious wine. See, what came first in the end was not what was best. Moses brought the law, and the law was good, but it didn't do anything on its own to achieve the righteousness of God, to restore us to God, or to give us the joy of salvation. And so instead, just like water for washing dishes, the law served to reveal how dirty and disgusting our sins really are. And that's why even even Moses, who, who had given the Israelites the law, even Moses looked forward to the prophet who would come, who would lead God's people. That's why the sacrifices that Moses gave pointed forward to something better. Someone who would come to satisfy the demands of the law. What came last, as the master of the feast eventually realized, what came last was actually the best. And that's the point that the Lord Jesus is teaching with this sign. A new covenant needed to be made, not like the first covenant. And this new covenant would come by His power through His work. 
Jesus' hour had not yet come, but it would. And he points us ahead to that hour in this miracle when he would take the filth that the law reveals in us and truly purify us. Not with ritual water, but with his blood poured out for us to achieve the justice of God. The wine that the Lord Jesus brought to the master of the feast, it points to the joy also in the celebration of that new covenant. You might think also of what the prophets uh, said so frequently, like in Jeremiah 31, they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and their herd. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will give them comfort and gladness instead of their sorrow. So wine is, is of course, the universal symbol of celebration. And the prophets in the Old Testament often used wine, the, the, the lavish supply of wine in the New Covenant, to describe the conditions of the latter days when God's saving goodness would finally be revealed. You think of Isaiah 25, verse 6, where it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Or Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, Jesus, by producing wine at no cost and a lavish, abundant supply, 150 gallons of wine, shows that He is the one who's going to herald in that kind of new covenant. So He doesn't only show the insufficiency of the old covenant, it's, it's powerlessness to make us righteous, but He also, by this sign, points to the glorious nature of the new covenant, the celebration the wine, the joy, the reasons, the thousands of reasons for rejoicing in God's lavish outpouring of mercy. Well, that time of rejoicing, Jesus teaches us, will only come through His work and by His power. And so by this sign, as the Lord Jesus is the one who draws out and He's the one who, who, by whose power the, the, the water becomes wine, the Lord Jesus also directs us then to Himself as the fulfillment of God's salvation. It's only going to come through Him. And that's our, our third and last point. Verse 11 tells us this is the first of Jesus' signs, which He performed in Cana of Galilee. And as the first sign, it points ahead to the big picture of what's coming. The Lord's first sign occurs at a wedding because after all, He Himself is the, the bridegroom of God's people. In fact, that's exactly what you see in the next chapter. John the Baptist says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And there he's referring to Christ. But now the Lord Jesus is not like the failed bridegroom that you see here in chapter 2, who ran out of wine, but he's the one who gives an unimaginable supply of wine. 150 gallons is a ridiculous amount of wine to have at any wedding. And so by this sign, he points us forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb, which is coming, where they will say, just like in the words of Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and her bride has made herself ready. 
Well, verse 11 also tells us that through this sign, the Lord Jesus manifested his glory. Here we begin to see already in the very first glimpses of of Jesus' ministry, we start to see the glory that John told us was coming in chapter 1. Think of John 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only one, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Christ's glory is the glory of God Himself. The prophets eagerly look forward to the salvation that, the, that God would bring, and they spoke of the new covenant that would come by God's power. And what Jesus shows us here is that glory that God is bringing is coming through Him. The new covenant that God is bringing, He is the one who will be bringing it. He shows that by His power, He turned the wine the water into, into the wine of celebration. And so he shows that in him is the power of God to do such a miracle, and in him is also the work of God. They knew that this day was coming, and he shows that he's the one who's ultimately going to bring it about. The salvation that God was bringing, he would bring through Christ. The saving work of God that the prophets had prophesied so long ago, not only for Israel, but for all the nations, is coming through Christ. It's found in Him and in Him alone. So He shows us He is the manifestation of God's glory. Well, we we, we read in verse 11 that the disciples saw that glory and they believed in him. That doesn't mean they fully understood his mission. We're going to see later on in the Gospel of John that, that uh, they didn't fully understand his mission. But they recognized that he was doing the work of God through the power of God. So they recognized whatever salvation God is bringing, it's clear that he's bringing that salvation through Jesus. He was the Savior that God had promised, even though they didn't understand what that Savior would do. And this, this is then what the Apostle John calls us to do as well, to believe that this is the Savior that God had promised. Again, as he wrote in chapter 20, these signs are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you would have life in His name. So the glory of God is seen exclusively in the Lord Jesus. There's no other way to God. The work of God is the work that Jesus did. The salvation of God is the salvation that Jesus brings. And He is the only way to the Father. So when the disciples saw what the Lord Jesus had done, they saw in Him the work of God. And John wants us to see that as well and to run then to Christ as the Savior that God sent. Through the work of Christ, the promises that God gave to His people so long ago are also now our promises as well. We, after all, are the nations that were afar off that God promised He would bring near. The joyful cause for celebration that you see in that lavish supply of wine, that celebration and the reasons for it are ours. It's because through Him, we also 
are invited to sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb, to sit at table together with Jesus and with the rest of God's people from all generations. And so John is calling us here, believe in this Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the one whom God sent. He's fulfilled the law for us. He's filled it all the way to the brim. And now he invites us into the joy of the Father. Let us trust in nothing and no one else but that Savior. Don't look back either. Don't look back to the way that things used to be. Don't set your hope on a restoration of the glory days of old, whether that's in Israel or even here in Canada. God brought those days to an end for a reason because He has better days coming. So instead, look forward. Look forward to the grace and mercy and justice and righteousness that God is bringing today. The glorious kingdom that He's building today and will ultimately build completely in the future. Set your sights on the future that God is bringing through Jesus. That is where we are ultimately going. And so then let us leave behind whatever we don't need for that future. That's the way that the author to Hebrews uh, speaks. He says, leave behind the sin that still clings to you as you run the race and come to him again in repentance, in full confidence that the life he lived in our place and the death that he died in our place is sufficient to completely fill up the law, so that we now may rejoice with him in the outpouring of his grace and mercy that we have in the gospel. So we know that all these things are promised to us and offered to all else who turn to him in repentance and trust. Let us then also give him our entire lives. Amen.